Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we learn from those doing good in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the world, why they care, what we, Chris and I, can do, but most importantly, what you, the listeners, can do. Pod for Good is produced and edited by Rant9 Productions and can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. Also, if you're interested in finding out when our episodes come up, please go to podforgood.com and sign up for our newsletter, which will be coming eventually. As always, I am your chief philanthropod and class clown for justice number one, Jesse Elward. I am your vice admiral philanthropod and class clown, class clown for justice A, Chris Miller. So I'm one and you're A? Is that what we're doing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Listen. I didn't want to be number two. We're going to find a smooth way to keep our original titles and add Class Clowns of Justice into these intros. <laughs> I don't care how many times we have to try it. Listeners, we will get this. If you have suggestions about how to phrase that, please, please make a comment on Facebook. Send me an email. You know how to find me. But most importantly, we are very excited for this episode where we have Labrisa Williams, the executive director of the Tulsa Birth Equity Initiative. We talked to Labrisa about the difference between doulas and midwives. There is a difference. How to make hospital care more equitable for everyone and the joys of trying to complete everything possible in Breath of the Wild. You can't. There are 900 Korok seeds and no one's going to get them all. 900. Enjoy. We are very excited to have Labrisa Williams, the executive director of the Tulsa Birth Equity Initiative, on the podcast today. Labrisa. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm glad to be here. Excited about our conversation today. Listen, Chris and I are always excited when people are excited <laughs> to talk to us. Jesse, honestly, yes. you don't need someone to be excited for you to talk with. That's true. But yeah, I, I, like, to, I like to make people feel special. Yeah. So we shouldn't tell people that I'm excited to talk to anybody. So that, is, that feels, I don't know. I feel like that, that cheapens it a little bit. We're going to okay, edit this Sorry. Out. Sorry. Yeah. Thanks for ruining my, my segue into interview, Chris. So the Tulsa Birth Equity Initiative. Before I ask you to tell us what that is, can you tell us like why the program, this program was made? I guess, yeah, tell us, tell us the, the birth story of the Tulsa Birth Equity Initiative. Yeah, so the program really launched from a place of the national maternal health crisis. I mean, all across the nation, we're seeing inequities in maternal health and we're seeing people experience pregnancy-related complications. Specifically, as a westernized country, we are not doing very good in terms of maternal health outcomes. And so it really came from a place of not only are all groups not doing well in maternal health outcomes, but there are specific racial and ethnic groups who aren't doing that well either. And so really wanting to see equity and seeing people not experience uh, preventable pregnancy-related complications and have the birth that they desire. And so from that, the Tulsa Birth Equity Initiative, which what's the abbreviation you like to use for the program? So people have called it TBEI. We really didn't imagine it being TBEI, but people just you know came up with the abbreviation. So TBEI or Tulsa Birth Equity Initiative. One of those is shorter than the other. So uh, <laughs> eventually I might go with uh, the shorter one, but what interested you in this kind of work? Yeah, so for a long time, I've been passionate about public health work, more so about inequities in public health. I'm a native of Tulsa, grew up in North Tulsa, 74106 zip code area, one of the zip code areas that was highlighted in the City of Tulsa's Equality Indicators Report as having a 13-year life expectancy difference than some zip code areas in South Tulsa. And so inequities have in public health have always been something that I've just been passionate about addressing, especially things that are outside of the control of people that are residents of those specific zip code areas. I've done some work in teen pregnancy prevention, 
was a Peace Corps volunteer, did some HIV prevention work, and then became passionate about child and maternal health. And so I think generally just ensuring and supporting people and being like the healthiest versions of themselves, but knowing that there are things that impact individual health, right? So environment, food, all these different pieces. And so well, inequity has always been something dear and close to my, to me and I don't know, the work that I do. And then my family, y'all, I have three sisters. Two of them have children. One wants to have children. I want to have children one day. And so maternal health, it impacts lots of folks, but it also impacts people that I, people that I love the most. So my family. So, so how does the TBEI, how do you work to accomplish the, your goals? Yeah, so we have six components of TBEI. When we began TBI, we really wanted it to be a systems thinking approach on how we address and improve maternal health outcomes. And so we have our community-based doula program. So how do we make sure that families are seen and heard throughout the pregnancy, throughout that childbirth and labor experience, and then also postpartum? So it's very direct service and it's the doulas providing a service to families. We do things with the hospital systems. How do we support them in addressing gaps in maternal health? We have a preconception program where we provide supports to people who want to conceive, who are navigating a chronic illness like hypertension or diabetes. We do a lot of awareness and then data and policy. So we want to make sure that the work that we're doing is sustainable. So we want to support legislation, do outreach to policymakers, decision makers, so we can move the needle on maternal health outcomes. And so we want our legislation to align with where we want to be in terms of improving maternal health outcomes. And so really just equipping families, supporting advocacy efforts to improve maternal health and really wanting to see some longevity and sustainability in terms of the work. So I know that, you know, with the Tulsa quality indicators and the work GKFF, like their stated, their stated mission of what they're doing, there's a lot of energy around the economic and health disparities in the sort of greater Tulsa community. Have you all found data that shows that this was working? Yeah. So the program is fairly new. And I know a lot of times it takes, I mean, five to 10 years to actually see more national statistics move or even statewide statistics move. So ideally, we would love to see a reduction in maternal mortality and morbidity, but we are a fairly new program. So we started this work in 2019. And so in the middle of a pandemic, we're still in a pandemic. So we're still expanding and scaling our programs, but we would love to be able to to really look at outcomes more long-term once we get further along in the work. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's a terrible question to ask you. Like, I know it takes, you know, <laughs> three to five years for any of these things to show. I know that. I've worked in, non- I, I used to work in nonprofits. I'm sorry. You mentioned that you work with some of the hospitals as well. And, and a previous guest that we had on talked about how the implicit biases that some medical professionals and, and often unconscious biases that they have can affect the healthcare that people of color receive. Is that something that you see as part of this work, especially with maternal patients? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the research it shows, right? Like folks who are Medicaid or folks who uninsured, folks of different racial and ethnic groups have different outcomes than people of higher socioeconomic statuses or people who don't identify as person of color. So we know that implicit bias pays plays a role in the type of care that people receive. And so that is something that we're also working on with the hospital systems. I know one of the root causes of maternal complications or pregnancy-related complications is communication or lack of communication. And so having every member of the team communicate seamlessly, right? So at two of the hospitals, we've worked to bring a program called Team Birth, 
where all of the people who are part of the birthing team are communicating in these team huddles. I think traditionally it's been, you know, the nurse will communicate to the patient and then the nurse goes back to the physician. And now it's really where everybody is a part of these huddles. If there are concerns as a patient, I can call a team huddle and the physician is present, the nurse is present. So really improving the mechanisms of communication so they're more effective and also efficient. So definitely implicit bias plays a role and it's something that is is hard to address implicit bias. Mm -hmm. Related to that, I mean, one of the difficulties for a lot of patients is that they don't always know what information to share. They don't know what kind of questions to ask and things like that. So do you have educational resources, things like that, that you provide to the patients so that they are better equipped when they do speak to the doctors or speak in these huddles? Yeah, absolutely. Our doulas provide lots of educational and informational support. And they talk about the urgent maternal warning signs, so things to look for, you know, maybe after birth or labor that you should contact the provider about. So they do lots of educational materials from progression of labor, preferences. They make a a birth plan with their clients. And so there's a lot of educational informational support that our doulas provide to families as well that prepare them for that hospital experience. That huddle model, I feel like is something we all want when it comes to (laughs) our healthcare because it always feels very disconnected. (laughs) And I can say that especially today as I'm having a weird issue with my doctor and the fact that like I can't get to him from his office. They are so uncoordinated. But just from like having family members in the hospital, you notice that like it's hard to get the same answer out of multiple people. And you're like, okay, so what is wrong? And anyway, I feel like that's a good model for the sort of patient care in general. For sure. I think there's opportunity for care coordination. I think for people who have like, who see multiple specialists, let's say postpartum, I just had a baby. I'm going to see, you know, I'm going to begin seeing a pediatrician. I'm also going to see my primary care. But if I'm dealing with maybe a chronic illness, I have a specialty doctor, right? So sometimes those physicians don't necessarily communicate with one another. So it's up to the patient to communicate, be the means of communication between providers. And so definitely opportunities for more care coordination between clinicians as well. You've mentioned doulas a couple of times, which I sort of generally know what they are, but I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only person either on or listening to this podcast that's not sure exactly what a doula is or what their role is. Can you explain that, please? Yeah. So a doula is a support person. It's a friend. It's somebody who's there specifically to support around the pregnancy, the labor and birth experience, and then the postpartum period. Doulas are non-clinical. They don't provide you know, medical advice. They don't diagnose. They don't treat. They really support people to really make sure that the birthing people are as comfortable as possible throughout that pregnancy and childbirth and labor and postpartum experience. And so they can do, I mean, lots of things from educational support to comfort measures on birthing balls and peanut balls from breathing techniques, really there to support the parents throughout that process. And so there's a lot of things that doulas can do, but generally to summarize, they support people. For that pregnancy, they're always there for that labor and birth. And then they also support in the early months of parenting and postpartum. I mean, I, I imagine the answer to the question is yes, but I just want to ask it so that our audience can be reminded of this. There's still an issue about sort of the medical field and understanding and comprehending Black women's pain, right? Does that, is that still a major issue? Yes. I know there was research that talked about who receive similar diagnosis and receive different types of treatment for those conditions. And people of color and Black people would receive like lower dosages of that treatment. 
for the same illness. And so there's definitely this belief that, I don't know, Black people have like, I don't know if it's thicker skin or pain management. We perceive pain differently for whatever reason. And a lot of these studies were were done by folks in medical school and they asked medical students. So these are folks who have these beliefs who are training to provide care to these same communities. That's it's one of the things of it's sort of a very good indication of where like racial misunderstandings come into play that have a major effect on one particular group. And that is like the almost like assumption that some people can handle more pain than others or that their pain is less valuable or important. So, well, and you see that not just with people of color, but a disparity between women and men as well. So when you're talking about women of color, they're often their pain is treated the least of of almost any other category. Yeah. And I would imagine that would contribute to some of the mortality and morbid morbidity that you see with more maternal patients. Yeah, I would agree with that. And when expressing concerns around pain or symptoms that are experienced, it could be belittled, right? Like, oh, that's normal or, you know. Not, I don't want to say not believable, but the extent of the pain. A lot of times, what is it? They rank, they have a scale of pain. Tell me the pain. Is it one mm-hmm. to 10? How can we put our pain? Le- like, how, like, how's that even possible? What a 10 for me could be a one for you. So, right. It's, yeah. I've always hated that. Yeah. I, how am I qualified to measure pain? How yeah. am I qualified? I didn't go to medical school. Yeah. It hurts a lot. That's what I can tell you. It I'm hurts like, a lot. Is there a class on like the pain and the numbers and what they mean in medical school? Right. Like it's a stupid scale. I think it's just honestly, I think they look at how long it takes you to answer that question and be like, oh, person's in a lot of pain. It took him a while to come up with the, the number. Right. Because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, what is a 10? Like, could I even talk with a 10? Would I just be on the floor? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's dumb. Are you like one of those peoples that never give a five during a review? So you'd never say 10, even if you were dying, you'd be like, uh, nine and a half. <laughs> listen, you, you don't think in my head, I'm like, listen, other people's pain much worse than mine. Like, I, do, do I, do, I, like, I don't deserve a 10. Like, it's, I no. can literally hear your dad saying yep, that. It's like, yep. uh, it's like ah, it's his, seven. his yeah. foot's cut off. He's like, yeah. uh, probably it's only a, a six. Yeah, six. Yeah, I was going to say six. Yeah, that's why the scale's stupid. Way too subjective. <laughs> but yeah, I'm like, I'm not deserving of a 10 anyway. <laughs> so okay for for people who are listening and who are say not not african-american not in f- from the zip code you mentioned like what what is this like this is a weird 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 way of phrasing this question but why should they care like beyond the fact that we want people to you know survive <laughs> giving birth to to children like what is the the overall society good that all this work leads to. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, I would say that maternal mortality, I mean, it's a good indicator of the health of a community. Birthing people bring life. And we talk about continuing life. And if, and not only when we uplift people of color and black in the work, when their outcomes improve, we're uplifting all birthing people in the work. Right. So I don't think it should be, a siloed approach like, oh, only black women or people of color are benefiting or their outcomes are the only ones improving. No, everybody is going to benefit from team birth being implemented at the hospitals with better communication systems being more effective and efficient. So when we uplift certain groups that are experiencing disparities, everybody is allowed to uplift. But maternal mortality, I mean, it's an indicator of the health of a community and individuals make up communities. And so I think as individuals, we should, I mean, we should care. And I mean, 
I don't know. I always put it back to my family. I have sisters who have children who may have children one day. And um, if I was a clinician, I always I, I used to do this thing where people stop and reflect during like some presentations and think about what do you want for the your loved your loved one who may have experienced pregnancy or who wants to experience pregnancy. You want them to have a dignified birth, free of trauma, one where they're listened to, they're heard, they're valued, they're seen. So we should still want these things for the people in our lives, even if we're not a part of the groups that are historically marginalized or underserved. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point because a lot of the stuff that you're talking about would make this experience better for everyone. And like even Jesse mentioned, not just people you know, giving birth. I mean, literally everyone's medical experience could be improved and create better health outcomes for everyone based on the type of work that you're doing. I mean, I would say also like almost bragging rights, like America does not do well in these numbers. And I feel like (laughs) America's competitive spirit would want us to improve these numbers, right? Yeah. Like we should be better than Holland at this, right? That's just one country. I don't know what what actual, what actual European country has the highest number, but it's one of them. So one of the one of the you talked about a, a system approach. I know when both Jesse and I went through Thrive class with Marcia, when we talked about uh, the focus, it was specifically on teen pregnancy, and then another one on health disparities. For one of the things they talked about was the social determinants of health, and and it's kind of in line with you saying that things outside of the control of the people who live in these zip codes. So what are the things outside of uh, the what most people think of as far as the health of a patient can can lead to this mortality and, and how are you approaching that? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I often think a lot of times about the environment either aiding or not supporting healthy behavior. And what I immediately think about is the neighborhood I grew up in. We didn't have like nice parks that encourage physical activity. Even now, the track, it's not a paved track. It's like gravel, which is difficult to jog or even walk on for, you know, elderly people. So I think about those things. I think about food insecurity. So one way to we talk, we talk about preeclampsia or diabetes, hypertension, um, a lot of that is linked to healthy food options and having access to fruits and vegetables and not consuming like processed foods. but That can be difficult if you live in an environment where there's no grocery stores or there are, what is it, the corner, the corner stores or family dollars or general dollars. And there's no access to those types of fruits and vegetables. And so I think those things play a part in how do we become the healthiest versions of ourselves before conception, but also knowing that even in the in my healthiest state. I can still experience pregnancy related complications for whatever reason. And so I think while there are things that individuals can do, I think some of it too is is out of the control of individual behavior. If you're like me, you might hear estate planning and go, ugh, gross. You might think to yourself, I'm not sure why I'd bother with that. Estate planning is only for the uber rich. Tallgrass begs to differ. Tallgrass founding attorneys Laurel and Riley think everyone should have an estate plan. They know estate planning seems untouchable to a lot of folks, like something you have to do inside a stuffy law firm of Stuffy McLawyer Pants Esquire. But I promise you, Tallgrass is nothing like that. For one, they work out of their home so their clients can feel at home. They obsess, because they're nerds, over making clients feel like they belong and are supposed to be there. Also, their kids might make an appearance. They will take time to answer all of your questions, even the uncomfortable ones. They will work relentlessly to make sure your plan's exactly what you need to feel secure and at peace. So if you've been putting off planning for what's going to happen after you've gone, 
it's time for you to give Tallgrass a call at 918-770-8940 and start your plan today. Or visit their website at tallgrassestateplanning.com and schedule a free initial consultation. For free! It's right there on the website. And of course, there's more. The podcast said, if you tell them you're a Pod for Good listener, they're going to take 25% off their service fees. Just tell them Pod for Good sent you. Stop thinking estate planning isn't for you and give Tallgrass a call today at 918-770-8940 or on their website, which I'm not going to read out to you again. It's in our show notes. Thank you, Tallgrass. If you had, you know, it's February 1st, we're in a, we're in a new year, No, it still feels like 2020. Most of the time, in the in sort of the next in the next three to five year sort of time frame, what are some like concrete goals you want to be able to accomplish uh, in the community on this topic? <laughs> Great question. I think as a collective, it'll take a few organizations and some some key decision makers. But I think about some policies. So Oklahoma got Medicaid expansion. Would love to see Medicaid extension where postpartum birth people are still covered past 60 days. So making sure that they're still insured so they can access maternal mental health supports, do, I don't know, more checkups with primary care physicians if that's what that's what what is needed, but still supporting them through their health journey past 60 days postpartum. So Medicaid extension will be one thing. And then doula reimbursement is another policy point, making sure that we can reimburse doulas for the services that they provide through Medicaid. There are many studies that talk about the, the, the positive outcomes of doula services and community-based doula work. And so we know that they are effective. We know that they're beneficial in reducing elective cesareans and increasing rates of breastfeeding. And so want to make sure that doulas get reimbursed for the services they provide. Some that are more, I think, simplistic are around awareness. Want people to know about the program ser- offerings and services of TBEI but also what a doula is. I think there's lots of misconceptions, what a doula is versus what a midwife is. So really just raising awareness to the work, to the misconceptions and debunking some of the myths, but also the statistics around health equity and maternal health equity. I'm going to ask you about the midwife versus doula thing. You, you explain what doulas are, but explain the difference between the two. Yeah. So a midwife is more, they are overseeing the medical and clinical care of the birthing person. So they can replace an obstetrician gynecologist. So they can do cervical checks. They can do prescribed pain medications, things like that. So they are, sometimes people say catch babies. I don't, know, I don't know if I like that term, but they essentially are there to oversee the labor experience and manage labor. So they are clinical, they're medical versus doulas are non-clinical, non-medical support people. So that's, that's really the main difference is they're medical providers. It's interesting hearing the difference because I wonder how many people don't understand the difference and people who think, oh, I have a doctor I go to, I have a gynecologist, I have whatever, so I don't need a doula because I'm going to the <laughs> hospital, you know, and how many people could benefit from the service but think they don't need it. And I was going to say, like, I imagine there are, like, c- certification processes for both both things that are also both different. And so, you know, it's not like one is, you know, just a group of people interested in the thing and one are like professionals. They're both professionals certified, but in, from different sort of tracks, I guess. Yeah. I mean, like, again, like my only experience other than meeting a multitude of midwives before I met them, like my only experience with midwives was like from films from like, you know, medieval times. 
right? That's the only time the word midwife gets mentioned if you're a boy before the age of like 15, right? That's the only time, like any Robin Hood movie always has a midwife for some reason. So I'm glad we defined that for people so they know. (laughs) So one of the, I don't know if it's urban myth is probably not the right word, but one of one of the myths around what can cause uh, maternal disparities it has to do with drug use. So, and knowing that a lot of other things are causing this, so how do you how do you deal with that? Those types of and and other myths. I mean, you mentioned that some people assume it's personal health decisions, stuff like that. So, how do you deal with some of those uh, myths like drug use, personal health decisions when you get uh, pushback? on why you should have resources, why there should be changes to support your work. Yeah, I like to lead with data. So I think the data really tells us the story of what's happening. And I think if we don't allow the data to lead and drive whatever project or implementation that we want to implement to see like the disparities change and shift, then what do we do, right? And so I would say, look at the data. I mean, what is the data telling us? We have a maternal mortality review committee that reviews uh, maternal deaths for the state of Oklahoma. Um, They recently published a report. And so I think making sure that we're looking at the data because we can say, I mean, we can say things all day. Oh, it's individual behavior. But what is the data telling us is the reason for our high maternal mortality and morbidity rates. And Oklahoma does have a high use of substances for pregnant people. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the linkage is to pregnancy-related complications or if there is one, but you'll often hear people say, hey, it's because they were using substances that they experienced this this pregnancy-related complication. And so, I mean, there are many factors, and it's really hard to pinpoint one reason, like why somebody experiences, I don't know, an elective or not an elective cesarean, but like a medically necessary C-section. So, it's I mean... So many factors that contribute to, you know, the doulas. We teach about birth plans, but it's just that it's a plan and things don't always go as planned. So Mm -hmm. I know someone who had a birth plan and then the baby decided to come, you know, two weeks early. And so like, that's great. They had a plan that did plan didn't matter at all, which, uh, you know, uh, that's babies for you, I guess. But uh, that's me the tagline of this podcast. That's babies for you. But (laughs) And I, this is a question you may not know the answer to, but when we're talking about sort of the disrespect of Black women's pain, and we also talked about Oklahoma's, you know, opioid crisis, and I'm wondering what the, like, if there are number differences, like, are there less, is like the opioid problem in Oklahoma more of a white person problem? Because they're ones given the pain medication in the first place, right? Uh, versus where other people might be told, tough it out. And I'm, I, I imagine there are numbers out there somewhere. Maybe one of our listeners can send it to me. But I was just, I'm, I'm interested in that because, like, you have to have access to healthcare to get on those pills to at least start off with. And so, when there are healthcare disparities, are the sort of abuses of certain substances different in those different communities? And I'm guessing the answer is yes. But I'm wondering if you've ever like seen any numbers on that or anything. Yeah, I haven't seen any numbers on it. I know I'm familiar with a few of the recovery programs. And I can say that a lot of the folks that are in recovery um, are typically white. And so, and that's usually for, for opioid use and some of those different substances. But I think for people of color, some of the more, I think, widely used substances are not, I don't know if I can say them, but I don't know. Yeah. Are things like marijuana. 
And so it, it definitely is a difference in what type of substance is being used based on race and ethnicity. And I don't think, I don't know the data, but as far as I know, it's typically not communities of color that are using opioids or not a majority. Yeah. No, I mean, like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, because like, you know, the, the history of drug, drugs, crime, the way drugs are handled in courts are usually racially unbalanced. And so it was, it's interesting in, in, in maybe in this one particular area where that isn't the case due to all the other problems. Uh, that, was, that was a very pod for sad turn. We're going we're gonna to transition here. <laughs> it does bring up a, just to follow on one more question off of that is that I know a lot of people have a fear and sometimes valid fear that if they have been using drugs, that if they go into a hospital to give birth, their baby may be taken away from them because a lot of hospitals drug test the mother and the baby. And if there's drugs in the system, they'll take the baby away. And I wonder if, is that a situation that can lead to people maybe putting themselves in a less desirable position when they're giving birth? Yeah, I know we've seen it where people have been using substances and I'm not sure that there's a standardized protocol or process to say, you know, if this substance is being used, we should be contacting this agency. So I think it is based on individual, you know, decisions. So, hey, I decide I'm going to contact the agency and report it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think having something standardized so that we can remove implicit bias and what that looks like based on, you know, the patient's ethnicity, race, I think that's important. But I think it definitely shows up. And even in being honest, as a patient. And I think it's hard to coordinate care and to provide patients with the best care if patients aren't allowed to be, or not allowed, if they don't feel that they can trust the people that are providing the care to say, hey, I I use this substances in the last 30 days, knowing that there could be ramifications or consequences to sharing that information. I mean, I I, I can tell you, I I just experienced a thing where I'm, I was originally on Insure Oklahoma when it existed, it no longer exists. And I was told I was going to be kicked off of it when it ended, but instead, because of the public health crisis we're in, I got pushed on the sooner care, which I'm like, okay, fine, I'll take it. But sooner care requires certain substances to uh, require a drug test. And because I am on ADHD medication, that is in the group that is categorized, like categorized that are flagged that they may need a drug test. I don't actually, but if I was on any sort of pain medication, I would have had to have a drug test. And that got me thinking about who those people are and like, I imagine if I had regular insurance, this wouldn't be much of a, as much of a problem, and it just made me angry. <laughs> On top of all the problems, I, uh, all, all the other problems I have with healthcare in, the, in this country, mm-hmm. but well, that goes back to some of the policy stuff you you talked about. In this country, we have a habit of anything that is designed to, you know, help people who are in a lower socioeconomic status. We like to put all kinds of barriers and hurdles that they have to cross to get the services that they need and drug testing is one, but you know, all of the, the potential, you know, red tape or finding what services are available, all of that can make it difficult for somebody who doesn't, isn't, doesn't have a job that automatically provides them health insurance or have money to go out and get their own insurance. Are there aspects? I mean, I know you talked a little bit about Medicare expansion uh, an extension are are the difficulties related to finding those services is that something that you also tackle yeah we've been we've been thinking through what that looks like and really in terms of mental health support we found that there are not a lot of mental health providers here in Tulsa 
So for people who are experiencing postpartum depression, really getting them connected to therapists and to to really navigate that condition and seek treatment has been, I think, a barrier and a challenge within itself. So navigating like who are the providers and if I'm dealing with this this issue today, how long will it take for me to be seen? So we've seen, I don't know if it's backlog, but just a delay in how long people can receive services with therapists, I think is a good example of that. And sometimes not knowing like where to go for services. And so we do, we are part of a referral network with some local organizations here in Tulsa. And I think that has been helpful to some of our clients who need services outside of doula support or pregnancy support. Well, that leads me to the next question I was going to ask, which is what other organizations do you tend to partner with or refer patients to? We work a lot with some therapists over family and children children's services. We partner with Connect First and a lot of their programs, which are also similar, similar in terms of improving maternal health outcomes and maternal health support. Our doula program, we support up to three months postpartum. Ideally, we would love to support up to a year, but right now we're navigating scaling our program and capacity. And so there are some programs that support up to a year postpartum. And so If we have clients who want additional support up to a year, we do make referrals to programs under the Connect First. Tulsa Health Department's Family Advocates have been a huge resource, and they also help navigate resources for families as well. So if people call the Family Advocates, I mean, they can say they need support in bills, and they'll give them numbers to call to get support in paying bills, so whatever it is. So they do more general resources and supports for families where we are more specific to maternal health needs and pregnancy supports. For for the systematic problem like this, I imagine I'm not the only one that feels like problems are so complicated and so difficult that like, what can one person do to help? And so I'm going to ask you, what can people do to help? <laughs> that is a great question. I think a lot of times, so we do a lot of outreach events and when people see birth equity, they keep walking. Oh, that doesn't apply to me. I already had kids or I have grandkids. And I always think like how like it applies to everybody, right? Like either you know somebody who is in the reproductive age planning to have children, either you're a grandparent and your children are planning to have children or you have grandkids who want to have children. And so I think it applies to everybody and somebody within our circle, it impacts them. Like maternal health will be something that they experience and have to navigate at some point. But it it takes a collective it's definitely not one individual. It's a lot of organizations that are working to improve maternal health outcomes, but we didn't get here overnight either, right? It's been decades of of things that have taken place for us to see the poor maternal health outcomes that we see today. And so I don't imagine that, you know, tomorrow we'll wake up and we'll see equity or everybody will experience, you know, these high rates of maternal health outcomes. So it'll take time. But I think sustainability and longevity is the key in seeing like long term positive outcomes when we think about maternal health. And I think policy is a great place to start. You know, I, I feel like, in, especially in Chris and my lifetime, the uh, the terminology around this kind of work has changed from like, it, there was a lot of equality being thrown around when we were younger. And now it's transitioned to equity, which I feel is better. It's better because it's more accurate, but it's also harder to describe people. So can, can you tell us like, what is a more equitable maternal healthcare system look like? So I don't know if people have seen the image. I don't know if you can Google it, but it's like some people looking over like at a baseball field Mm -hmm. and they're all on different steps and all of them can see over the fence, which I mean, why the fence is there is a whole nother conversation. But 
They can all see onto the baseball field and all of their steps are the sizes that they need to be able to see over the field. And so equity is if, you know, tomorrow I decide I'm going to go buy a bunch of sneakers and donate them and I get all size 10s because that's the size that I wear. That's not equitable for people who wear size six, seven and eight and nine. Right. So it's providing people with what they need to succeed in the environment that they are in. That's what equity is. It's not giving them what we think they need to succeed, but it's giving them what they need to be in the conditions that to get them up to par with where other people already are, essentially. And so I think the baseball field is a good example. Everybody can see over the fence. Um, We all have the things that we need to succeed in this environment. Yeah, I feel like that that image analogy would work better if they were in the stands. And needed like seat boosters to see because like the whole, like, yeah, the fence there because that's the, the, the home run fence. But analogy wise, the fence feels bad and like shouldn't be I know there. it does. So it's like, these are the societal barriers. We'll give you a step to see over the yeah, societal so not, barrier, but you, you, you can't get past no, it. Like you don't get a seat. You don't get to go to the <laughs> baseball game. You can just look over. So, uh-huh. yeah. But it, no, I, I think it's an, it, the uh, equality versus equity is always an important conversation to have because of the the myth in this country that oh everybody gets to start with the same thing so everyone can be successful completely ignoring the fact that you know some people are born on third base and some people are born outside the fence trying to look over it you know and equity is not the same as it's i think people like to think of it as oh well you're just grabbing the person on third base and you're dragging them down to where everyone else is no it's lifting everyone up So that everybody has what they need to be successful. And then now we have, I don't know, people have thrown the term justice in there, which I feel like is even more complex, right? So how do we go back to historical wrongdoings, trauma, and then fix them? Like in the present Mm -hmm. day, like currently. So I feel like that's even, it's an an additional layer to to after equity. Yeah. Again, like there's so many, so many problems. And like, how do we... I, how many of them inter- interrelated where at least we could attempt to try to fix them all at the same time, right? And there's just, it just blows your brain up. Not to bring up our fairy pod mother again, yes. Marcia, but she always tells us, you don't have to solve the problem in your lifetime. You just have to move the needle. Keep moving the needle forward, right? And if you look at the entire problem and whether it's solved or not, you'll feel like a failure and you'll, you'll, you'll just give up. But if you keep making, trying to make it better, then you'll keep going and make it better for the next person. Well, she's very wise for someone so young. <laughs> I did paraphrase. Yeah. I'm sure she, <laughs> yeah. she would say it a lot better than me. I paraphrased. Yeah, it would have been shorter and more succinct, but that is her way. So, so Telsa's not an aberration uh, of a city having this issue. Do you know about other, other programs or attempts in other cities that are trying to do similar things? Yeah, so it's happening all across the nation. I know in Cincinnati, Ohio, I mean, they have a focus on infant health, but it's all interconnected to maternal health. We are a part of a Safer Childbirth Cities initiative, um, which consists of a bunch of other grantees who are also addressing maternal health and improving maternal health. And so it's definitely not something that we're only seeing here in Oklahoma. It's something that has spanned our entire country, which I don't know if that's a relief, but it's something that we're not only dealing with here in Tulsa is, is what I'm getting at. I feel like a lot of people who do good work in Tulsa and in Oklahoma at large have a complicated love-hate relationship with the place they grew up and you know, where they're currently living. So like, 
separate from your work. Like, what are your thoughts on Tulsa at this particular moment? Well, y'all, I never thought I was going to come back to Tulsa. Me too. (laughs) After Peace Corps, I was like, I'm going to D.C. And I had all these, you know, things I wanted to do. And then I ended up here, back here. I love Tulsa. It's home. I mean, my family is here. But I don't know. It's a lot of folks. I feel like nowadays there's so many people who, um, I don't know what they call them, transplanters who come from other places and they're here in Tulsa. And I feel like I'm just, oh, I'm this native Tulsa and I'm still here. (laughs) But no, I like Tulsa. Tulsa is home. I still use my GPS to go everywhere. But I mean, I (laughs) I love Tulsa. Yeah. That's mostly just to make sure that the route, you know, is the fastest one. Or that the construction or that is still, the road is still open. Keep up construction. That's right. Yeah. When we were doing some research on you a little bit, we noticed that you were fellowship with Healthy Communities fellowship can you a fellow with the well i don't know what the terminology is can you tell us a little bit about that program and and uh, what you learned from it and yeah it was a fellowship with the ASP institute the healthy communities fellowship and it's basically we were selected to really amplify to see healthier communities and we it was a year-long fellowship we participated in media trainings to learn how to do interviews, public speaking, how to pitch an opinion piece or an op-ed. And so that piece Jesse talked about with the Black Wall Street Times, they coached me into writing that piece and supported me in that. And so it was really about amplifying our voices. And a lot of times the voices of folks who may not have the support or even like the boldness or confidence to even pitch or write somebody over at the New York Times or the Black Wall Street Times, but they have a lot of good things to say. So it was really about supporting us and amplifying our voice and our passion and the the passion behind our voices, right? To see healthier communities. And so it was lots of training, lots of media training, support, assistance. Yeah, that's really what it was. So seems like something you would uh, use pretty regularly in your job, too. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just it just happened because I was a part of the fellowship. But I feel like we start getting a lot of like national news requests to talk about the work, to tell stories about the work, just lots of requests. And so the training definitely helps because I'm not a public speaker, but. It really helped in preparing me to tell the story and my why and why I choose to do the work that I do, who I am, how I'm personally connected to the work, why it matters to me and my vision for it. Well, I know I obviously haven't heard an interview prior to this, but your passion certainly comes through when you're talking about the work. So I don't know whether that's just organically or the training, but it definitely comes through. So, you know, as we we've already taken up more of your time than we should, I I do want to say for our listeners, you can't see this, but like Chris and I like are just like in our offices and you can see clearly the back of our offices, like Labrisa's got the professional, like just white behind her. And Uh. like that is someone who's been on like serious Zooms, I feel like, (laughs) uh, and not like whatever it is Chris and I do, but I I guess Chris's uh, BOK Zooms are probably in another room, but I just just want our listeners to know like the the caliber of of professionalism (laughs) that that is not Chris and I on this, mm-hmm. on this interview. So so uh, as we get closer to the end, I know you've talked a little bit about how people can help, but how can they connect with you, connect with the organization, keep up with what you're doing, and along the way, maybe find opportunities to help out as they can? Yeah. So we are on Facebook and Instagram at Tulsa Birth Equity. And then our website will be launching this month so people can follow us on social media and get the get the news early about when the website 
website will be launching and it'll be TulsaBirthEquity.org. No, that's not true. It's not TulsaBirthEquity. It's TulsaBEI.org will be our website. So we'll be launching that this month and it'll be opportunities and people will see where they can connect with us and in which ways they can support the work that we're doing. So one thing that I feel like we haven't asked in a little while with our guests is, I mean, we're in what, year three? I don't even know anymore of a pandemic. Almost. We're almost at a year three. Like, I guess April will be year three, right? Sort of. You're doing important, difficult work. <laughs> so what do you do to keep yourself sane to unwind? What do you do? What do you watch? How do you, how do you keep yourself going? Yeah, I recently got a Nintendo Switch. Nice. And y'all, Zelda Breath of the Wild. Yeah. It takes all my time. <laughs> and I've so never this, so is, this is like my first game and I feel like I'm a gamer really? now can I call myself oh. a gamer <laughs> yeah sure. yeah like Breath of the I Wild is, a, is, is an intense long game I like, love yeah. it like oh, I, I love yeah. it and so I'm trying to like <laughs> reduce screen time so I actually deactivated like my social medias this week <laughs> but I also bought a stationary bike that should be here on Wednesday so that'll like help nice. me do some things, but no, so yeah. So you're going to like pedal with your legs while playing? Playing yeah. the Nintendo, Wild. absolutely. Like I have to. <laughs> L- yeah. Like, so yeah, yeah listen, no. Yeah. Breath of the Wild can be very relaxing. Like sometimes I'll just like spend a, a couple hours just like getting star fragments. So I just like sit on top of a mountain and watch as shooting stars <laughs> fall and then I go get them and it's great. Uh, I love that game. So. It's a fun game. It I get frustrated when it seems like your sword or whatever breaks at the worst possible moment. When you really need it. But yeah. When you- <laughs> That's listen, you play the game long enough, you'll you'll always have other weapons. So, I know. I yeah. Know. And then you gotta do the master sword quest so it lasts longer. <laughs> so I will say that part of the game is immensely frustrating. Getting past the first t- there's three tiers of the master sword quest, and the first one nearly killed me. I'm like, I never want to do this ever again. And then the, the next one's the next one's longer and harder. I'm like, oh, okay. I don't think I'm at uh, the first one yet, but no. We'll get when there. you do, it's great. It's okay. one of the things where just like you, you make yourself a really strong potion beforehand. That's all. But this has been Zelda talk with uh, yeah, right. Yeah, I know. I I enjoy cooking, so that was an aspect of the of the game that actually drew me in was being able to. Ooh, what if I put these ingredients together? What can I cook? Yeah, I don't yeah. like when it says what nubious food. I'm like, oh man, I put some good ingredients in there and got nothing. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. You, you can actually cook pieces of wood and then eat them. Like they only give you it only gives you like a like a fifth of a single heart. But <laughs> like again, in that master sword quest, sometimes all you have are pieces of wood. So you cook those and just eat them for huh. 15 minutes until you get your hearts back up. Oh, the game did is not, the game is a, a piece of that. a piece of incredibly frustrating art. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. But all right, Breath of the Wild. That's a, that's a good answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Play Zelda. I'm gonna start riding this bike. Some. I still need to take there down my Christmas tree. So that's something I could be doing. But yeah, that's about it. Oh, and I'm also in school. What are you in school for? A master's in public health. All right. So I do that too on the evenings and weekends. So wow. Mm. That's. I mean, just going to school and playing Breath of the Wild full-time it's true so you, you basically you basically have like three jobs right now yeah i was playing zelda this weekend i'm like i didn't do no school work this weekend what am i doing <laughs> like i sat here and played zelda the whole weekend listen but i bet you accomplished a lot of zelda related things i so. did i did yeah that's the problem you get started playing and then like you're you're zoned out playing and you look up and it's like oh it's like nine hours later how did that yeah. How did that happen? Well, nine hours my nintendo switch is probably gonna die by the end and i'm like oh i need a charger <laughs> i need a charger true. 
That's true. After, yeah. uh, if you play on the dock with like uh, uh, on your TV, <laughs> you can play it for a long time without noticing how yes. long it's been. Uh, yeah. But well, Labrisa, thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Labrisa. If you want to know more about the Telsa Birth Equity Initiative, or TUBA, uh, check them out on Facebook at facebook.com slash Telsa Birth Equity. And if maybe this is your first episode for Pod for Good, please subscribe and like or whatever it is your podcast app does that lets you know when our episodes come. And again, if you go to podforgood.com, one, sign up for a future newsletter, two, easily share the episode and just, you know, uh, it's a much more prettier way to see how Pod for Good is uh, presented. So, you know, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. I think I did one TikTok recently about Wordle. So uh, get on that, people. Anyway, you know what to do. It's cold today. I'm going on vacation soon. For the love of God, if you haven't got vaccinated yet, what are you doing? You don't even have to wait. You just show up. Get, get it done, Tulsa. Broken Arrow. We're not talking anymore. Have a good day, everybody. Mm-hmm.